A long time ago, there was a songwriter named Dorothy Fields. She wrote a song called On the Sunny Side of the Street. She was one of J.D. Souther's favorite songwriters, along with Smokey Robinson. J.D. was really a jazzer with a refined sense of harmony and chordal structure, who was a drummer. He used to hear his dad walking around the house singing standards all the time. This is a fascinating conversation with J.D. from July of 2019. My son and I went to visit him in his Nashville place. We got to play with the dogs, and J.D. and I sat down and had this conversation. Smokey Robinson had said to you that Faithless Love was a perfect song. It was perfect, yeah. And then... He said to you something So about did Dorothy Fields told me the same thing. Really? So I just thought, well, I'm a grown-up songwriter now. Dorothy Fields, for yeah, sure. great lyricist from the 40s and the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Get your coat and grab your hat and leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. You can't go wrong with that. I love that you said that about Smokey Robinson, and you also told me that he said that I like writing stories, and then I got to rhyme them all up. I got them all rhymed up. <laughs> I love that. He said I used to go into Barry Gordy and... He said, think about it before going, because he didn't want to hear it if it didn't rhyme. So I'd think of my story, and I'd get it all rhymed up. There was something about Clovis recording studios with Norman Petty. When I was in high school, John David and the Cinders. What brought you to L.A.? I don't know. Another band from Amarillo was going to L.A., and they needed a, a better singer, another singer, and someone who could play drums. And my band was, they were all guys older than me, and the guitar player was great, the leader was not a very good singer but a great businessman and kind of booker and we didn't usually want to pay for a bass player so he just turned all the treble off of his hollow body gibson and played boom, 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 boom. and i played drums with really loud bass drum i was my nickname among the old jazz guys was a little hiroshima did you sing when you played drums yes as well? yeah that's how i kept my job in the band I was a sub drummer for somebody else and I knew they didn't have a good singer so I got all my friends to come up to this gig and request blues songs because the guitar player could play anything but the, the other guy couldn't, couldn't sing, didn't know blues. So they come, hey Stormy Monday Blues, I go, we don't know it, I go, yeah I do, move the mic back there and sing it. And we're, we're Lonely in, Avenue, we don't know that, I know it, bring it back here. We're in your, I guess, studio room now. And there's a drum mm -hmm. set in the corner. Mm -hmm. There's two drum sets here, yeah. Yeah. There's one out there and one in here. Piano and some old Tannoy speakers. Yes. Tannoy speakers. <laughs> you the, know, the, the speakers in the living room that we were listening on in the big house yeah. are the the ones that I was listening to uh, Linda Ronsett's mixes on. That, that's what I mixed her record on. They still sound better. They're 4311s, JBL 4311s. It's, it's amazing. That, you know, we were talking about when we first met I was 16. That whole period Tops, of time. Yeah. It was in Malibu. Yeah. I think that was when I was 16. and Let's call it 16. Let's call it 16. And that, that whole year was pretty amazing for you, really. I mean, you got, you got that house with Donna Jo. And Irving. We, just bought, we rented it as a party house, and then they all went to work, and I stayed in town and made Black Rose album. And then you'd come out on the weekends. and I came out almost every night. Oh, you drive in the middle of the night after mixing, after, after doing yeah. rough mixes? Yes. Just to hear the waves? Leaving the sound factory in East Hollywood. I'd drive I all the way to Trancas because it was so nice to wake up with the surf. I remember sound factory days. Yeah. 
no longer there. Sadly, no. Yeah. We used to call it uh, Greg Ladani Eggs. We would order from yeah. the restaurant. That's there were several. Mario's was down there. Mm-hmm. It was an Italian place we hung, and there were two, two or three places that delivered. Dantana's. That was at Santa Monica and Doheny, so that's way the other end of yeah. Hollywood. I still eat there. Henley and I ate there six months ago. Nice. Still great. Our comment, we were in the same back booth we always ate at in the 70s. It seemed big and fancy to us then. We couldn't even afford to eat there when we started hanging out there. So we're eating this dinner. We, we had been to do some uh, some honors thing for Linda Ronstadt. So Henley and I, let's go to Dantana's. Let's go to the Sad Cafe and eat. And we're sitting in the same booth, but we're all realized we're kind of all scrunched up now, you know, in ways we're not accustomed to anymore. And Henley looks around and he goes, did this place get smaller? <laughs> I said, no, we just got bigger. It's That's the amazing. same size. But they have the same bartender. Michael is still, he's got to be in his 90s now, too. He's still slinging drinks there. Yeah, it was there in the 70s. I love that. I love the continuity of it. So we were talking about you going out on the road solo and the challenges of playing on your own, telling stories for two hours, and how, in some sense, it's liberating, because... It's very liberating. You're not taking a whole band. It's very liberating. Unfortunately, it's musically not as rich, because they don't have this great jazz trio that I've had for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of hits that people want to hear, and you're playing those, and then you're working in your new yeah, material. anything. Anything I feel like playing, yeah. Yeah. But you have to kind of surf it. They're like sets, you know. If you're, you know, if you're sitting out in the, at the break waiting for a good set, they're not all good, but you ride some of them anyway. And I think that's what it's like for the audience, you know. You just between hits, you're just surfing like sort of these shallow waves, and then you hit a big hit, and whether you play it great or not, they go, "Whoa, yeah, that's." It must be rewarding that people still love those songs, and it it must also be. Like we were talking about the yeah, new kid in town. Yeah, it's a bloody curse, you know. But it also it's, a it's what too. brings them in there, you know. Yeah, they're good. So- they're good songs. I don't, I don't mind re- repeating them anymore because I'm by myself. I don't have to do it exactly the same every night, and I can do it in a different speed or even a different key. And it's the same for them somehow. I remember in the like mid '70s, Dylan started playing these shows where he just could barely recognize the songs. He'd mm-hmm. just make up new melodies and do it at a different breakneck speed or something, and. Everybody just hated it. I, I went to see him someplace in the 90s, that club, uh, the El Rey. Mm-hmm. He did a week there before he played the farm or someplace, and he had Willie open for him three nights and Cheryl Crow two nights. They were great sets, but it was just... I saw Joan there one night. She was coming out of the ladies' room, and I went... I said, has he sung any of the songs with the original melodies? And she just went, he's so fucking perverse. He just walked away. <laughs> so, By Joan, you mean Joni Mitchell? Yes, I did. Yes. Yeah. But we were both there, and we were digging it, you know. But she, you know, that was her comment. And I said, well, he, yeah, that's what he does. He does it deliberately. I don't know if you remember, but he was on some award show, and he sang Masters of War, and it was absolutely unrecognizable. And he had a, he had a great set on this. He had all these kids sitting behind him, and then during the middle of the song, somebody, one kid came up to the front and stripped his shirt off, and he had So Why Bomb written on it, because we were, you know, like an artist, and we were dropping bombs somewhere, I don't know. The thing is, it said so why with a Y, bomb, so it looked like soy bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make that much sense unless you were really 
on the inside. But I just, I love that he just sings the songs how he feels like singing them. Yeah, which is something that you can do when you're traveling solo. You, you can, can indeed. You can, you don't have to practice with the band. No. Then you're just kind of a, you are just a song and dance man, and you just come out and try to keep them happy for a couple hours. And... You probably didn't set out writing songs to make millions of dollars and have no, 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 I told you, I was a classical kid. I started playing violin in the fourth grade. And, so then I, and I was a jazz freak, so then I played clarinet and sax, which I still play. I played sax on one of the albums I made here. I played drums on two of my albums. I played, I discovered drums when I was a eighth grade I guess and from then on I was like oh, I had drums drums are it and then when I moved to California everyone was playing acoustic guitars and it's very hard to carry a set of drums around on the back of a Triumph motorcycle so yeah. I went home to my dad's music store and got a Gibson Dove which is still sitting over there beautiful <laughs> yeah and I didn't know how to play it I just but I figured you know all these other kids that have no musical background seem to be doing pretty well with it I'm sure it'll work out for me and then, of course, like anything you pursue with any kind of truth, it's a hundred times harder than you would have imagined to do it well. It's like songwriting is a perfect example. It's like painting. Anybody can do it. Almost nobody can do it really well. And what do you think the difference is between not well and well? If I had any idea, I would get up and write Faithless Love every morning. I have no idea. And when you wrote that song, were you picturing... <laughs> Flycasting. You're just like hoping you find, you're looking at a box of water and hoping there's an idea or fish in there. I don't know, just keep doing it. That song's so amazing because of it just all the, all the changes and sections, every part of it is beautiful and almost like its own song. It is sort of. That thing of where if the whole song is a hook, you don't have to worry about writing a hook. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> But that's a Hank Williams trick too. I mean, that's and that song is a direct example of that. Put the title in the first words. Make the first two words the title. You're cheating hard. Mm -hmm. You don't forget that. You come back and do that every sixteen bars or so, and it's like it's undeniable. So you talked about Dorothy Fields, but who were your very first the people that when you were a kid growing up that you wanted to be like? Oh, Duke Ellington. Uh, yeah, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. So it was Hank jazz. Crawford. Oh yeah, and, and then and then after Dave Brubeck came out, I wanted to be Joe Morello. I wanted to be that drummer. And I would have been. I just thought I was going to be a college music teacher. I thought I was going to be teaching theory and composition in some little podunk college, and probably get fired for having affairs with students and play drums in a jazz trio at Holiday Inn on the weekend. I really thought that would be a, a fine life, a happy life for me. And it just, I went to California and got in, fell in love with this other thing. Did you know Linda before California? No, no. You met I her I met there? her in the Troubadour. Yeah, she was just walking by me one night, and I just took her by the hand and said, you should sit down with me. She sat down, and I said, you should cook me dinner. <laughs> and she went, okay, and she gave me her phone number. And so I, I called her, and I went over, and she made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's great. And we were in love. <laughs> and I said, you're coming home with me. And she said, well, she was living with somebody else then, but it was the thing was over. She just, it was just the place she stayed and her stuff was kind of packed. And she said, oh, well, okay. I said, no, so I'll come back tomorrow night and take you to my house. And how long was it before you sung together? 
uh, a little while. I played drums for her a few times mm-hmm. because she didn't have a real steady band then that had a drummer. So now and then it, she'd go, "Honey, I really need a drum this weekend." Fuck. <laughs> Drive to Huntington Beach and play the Golden Bear for my girlfriend for four sets. And then she, she's the one who introduced you to Peter Asher. Which yes, uh, maybe, sort of. Yeah, although I, I, I met Peter through that. Kate Taylor. I was producing oh. Kate Taylor. So you knew James and Kate first? Yeah, sort of in, in reverse order. I think Kate first, then Peter, then James. And then uh, Linda was separate. We were just all we were hanging out at the Troubadour all the time. Peter and James inhabited a, already a slightly higher elevation. Mm-hmm. You know, Because they'd already made the Apple album. So they were uh, in L.A., I guess, doing Fire and Rain, doing the L.A., the Warner album. But he was definitely a comer already. He was he was happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And you and Glenn lived together. At we one did. Stage. We we, st- we was my first songwriting partner and best friend in L.A. Yeah. We lived in a, the crappiest place ever. Where was it? It was in Echo Park, which is really nice now, but it wasn't then. It was a building of songwriters, a whole hillside of songwriters. But it was like this weird bunch from that side you know it was Jackson Brown and Glenn and me and I think Pamela Poland lived in that building and some other guy who wrote really weird sort of Captain Beefheart kind of songs I can't remember his name a lot of those people never had any careers really you know but it was it was the East LA it was sort of like actually now sort of how the East Side's hip now you know yeah yeah we were our own little poverty-stricken hipsters on the east side of course as soon as we got money we moved west immediately so you had a community with all these people and as, as much as I'm capable of having one yeah yeah you you say that you like having a private life and when Glenn wanted to start the Eagles he just wanted more players and I wanted less I see we were pretty happy together although I think he thought I was too bossy and I, and I was writing too many of the songs I think the best song on the the first album we did together is his, but I wrote eight of the other songs, you know, it's just, I was bossy. And I'd been at it a little longer and I was real literate, it was easy for me to do, and I was, I'd oversing everything and overplay everything. I thought he was, looking back, I thought he was much more measured, and he wanted a band. And also Geffen didn't offer him a solo deal, so I went, yeah, go put together a band, we'll see. So Don was in, under the same circumstance. His band Shiloh wasn't going anywhere. And we had all been signed to the same company, too, a Jimmy Bowen company called Amos Records. Mm-hmm. And none of, our, none of our stuff was going anywhere. So Glenn and Don started hanging out. Linda and I were hanging out all the time. And they just said, let's make a band. And Linda was trying to get a band to go on the road. And I, we were in this place called Nucleus Nuance one night, this health food store. We used to go and get date shakes. It was like a... It was an early 70s health food restaurant on Melrose with cafeteria tables. Mm-hmm. And this waiter named Prince has brought us these date shakes. It was all we ate, it seems like. And we were all in there one night. I, I just remember saying at one point to Don and Glenn, you can't, you can't lose. I mean, you, you can, she'll pay you to go put a band together on the road. You guys can, you have to learn her songs, but that's great. You get to play for people and you practice. And they were already germinating this idea, I think. And they already had another guitar player that didn't work out, and then they got Bernie, and it was like, oh, Bernie was a big deal. Bernie Ledden was already a bluegrass legend, you know? 
And then they got Randy Meisner from Poco, and it was like, wow, okay, now we actually have a band. And then Geffen gave them a deal, and they became made more money than all the rest of us put together. Yeah, it, it, that time in the 70s, it seemed like you and Jackson and Glenn and Don and Linda and Don't forget James Zivon, too. And Warren, yeah, we're all... It, just and Waddy was a very important part of all of that. That's right. Waddy Wachtel. And Cooch. There was, there was a lot of people that were in this group of like, I don't want to sound snobby, but like if you weren't good, you couldn't be in the group. You just couldn't compete. You couldn't write in a room with that bunch of people if you, were, if you didn't have anything to say. And everybody had come from somewhere else, too. Everybody. No L.A. people. Yeah. <laughs> Jackson grew up sort of in L.A. Yeah, Echo Park, know. yeah. Yeah, it was like Detroit and uh, where was Linda from? Tucson. Tucson, okay, Arizona, Amarillo. Texas. Danny was from the East Coast. Yeah, Larchmont. <laughs> Danny says Larchmont, home of the blues. Home of the blues, <laughs> exactly. That's it. And Waddy was from Jackson Heights, New York, where he used to right. get chased home from school either by the Irish kids or the Puerto Rican kids because yeah. he and his brother were the only Jews on the block. It's like, you know, it's the strangest bunch of people, and then we were all just. By accretion, one or two at a time, three or four adding people, we just became this group of people that really played good music, you know. And music that's lasted and songs yeah, that have lasted. Yeah. Well, that was the deal always. That's what Glenn, Glenn and I always said our, our byword when we were writing was we build them to last. That's the idea. Because I'd come from that, you know. The first songs I heard were Puccini and, you know, opera, Don Giovanni. My grandma played it over and over. And you read a lot. I mean, you have Obviously, yeah. a lot of books in here, and apparently yeah, this thousands, is just yeah. a little bit. The it is just iceberg. a tiny bit, yeah. Yeah, there's a library somewhere of there is, J.D. Souther books. There's a huge library. Yeah. I come by it honestly. My my whole family are like that. My father always had eight or ten books stacked on his side, on his, the nightstand on his side of my parents' bed. Mm-hmm. He was always reading five at once. Mm-hmm. We just, all of us eat books, you know. Yeah, so when you're writing lyrically words, the palette you have for lyrics, it's well-oiled already because you're, you're pr- loving words. Yeah, it's probably a pretty large vocabulary. It doesn't make it any easier to, to decide which ones are good, but it's like the difference in a machine gun and a single-shot revolver. You know, There's a lot of choices, but trying to pick one is not necessarily easy. Yeah. Maybe, and- maybe harder because you have all those choices. Because they're flooding at you, and you can't really separate what's sugar, sugar, you know, from the first four lines of like a Rolling Stone. It's hard. It's just all sort of floating around in there, and something sticks, and you're either lucky enough to have a guitar or a drum or a machine or a piano or something, and you start playing it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any methodology for doing it. When you're writing, are you thinking about who's going to sing the song when you're writing? Never. It? So when you wrote Faithless Love, were you thinking... No, not really. Although, she heard me writing it. She came down the hall to this little back room we had at, at our first house. I think it was 2595 Beechwood. And she, I was sitting on the piano bench with a guitar, and she said, Man, that's amazing changes. What is that thing at the bridge? You know? And I said, I have no idea. I'm just doing it. And she said, Wow, I'd love to record that. And I said, If you finish it, can I sing it? And I said, Yes. Finished it by morning, you know. And then she didn't sing it for a while, and then all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, it was, on, it was a big song that everybody knew and other people were recording. And 
So then I cut it too. What kind of idiot am I? So I, that's on the Black Rose album. But it had been around for a while. And then Prisoner in Disguise, you did with her. Yeah, that's a duet. And would, was that written with that in mind to sing? Kind, uh, uh, kind of. I can't say it was or it wasn't. She was just there singing somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was her record, but it was. I had already cut it with the SHF band, and it was kind of clunky and rock and rolly and. We didn't do it very well, and uh, she wanted to sing it, and she wanted to sing it like a duet, and I said, great, because I've got parts all over the place, we'll just wind it up and let it go. So we just sat down opposite each other in the sound factory, and just played it, and then David Campbell wrote this brilliant chart for it. And, and you told me that when you finished singing it with her, you just both looked at each other and said, this sounds this sounds great. This sounds pretty good. Oh, kind of. We also said, well, maybe we'll get it tomorrow. We weren't really sure we had it, you know. But then we were going to be in the studio kind of every night anyway. And we came in the next night, and Peter Asher was grinning like a fool, and he said, I think you should listen to this before you record it again. It's nice to have that voice. Yeah, yeah. and and it was obviously. It's, I think both of us still think it's the best duet we ever any of us sang. You know, we were just locked. You were. And it's a hard song to sing. It's got octave jumps in it and all these weird chords that are already strange voicings, and then the melody's not any of the notes that are in the chords. And it was challenging, but uh, frankly, it just kind of flew by. Yeah. We had we had that thing. Sometimes we could just sing anything together without really working at it. It's nice that you credit Wadi because Wadi was around for so much and was the glue and kind of energizer yeah. for so much. He'd, he'd come in a room and kind of spark it yeah, up. Yeah, he's you know? the energizer bunny. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's still the same, you know. He still has the same hair, still wears the Black Muscles t-shirts. Yeah. And the Keith Richards, you know, death head ring and mm-hmm. armbands. And he's not going to change for anybody. Wadi is the, is the living definition of cool. Yeah, and he co-wrote as well. He co-wrote and wrote really well. He didn't write very often, but Linda cut a song of his called Maybe I'm Right. That's really touching and amazing. And it's just him. It's a little song. It's on one of those big albums, but it's kind of sandwiched between some other bigger songs and doesn't get noticed as much, but it's an amazing song. And you say you like a private life. You're not one for... You don't want to be in the city and have no, lots of no, I don't glamour want people, and glitz. No, <laughs> no, I can't afford glamour and glitz, emotionally or financially. It's too weird for me. Yeah, so you like you like the mountains and yeah. Privacy. It freaks me out to go to an event and and see twenty people with exactly the same plastic surgery. I feel like I'm living in a science fiction movie. It's and I don't have any lines because I don't know what to say to that. Yeah, well, there was a. A long period of time that you didn't make records. Yeah, I didn't work, let's be honest about well, it. Yeah, I mean, but after... The 90s. Like, I built this fantastic house. I built my dream house and just... I had two new dogs that I rescued. It was my first time really having dogs to be responsible for that had problems. And I built this amazing house with the help of this beautiful and great architect. And then I just didn't go anywhere for 10 years. It, it must have been challenging to have so much success, have the music business change completely, and then wonder 
how to be in it. And really, the thing is to always get back to where you were, where you started before having You can't power. do that. And, and how come? You can't do that. You can't step in the same river twice. It's just moving on, moving on. Rilke said, beware, O wanderer, the road is walking too. That's good. Yeah. We're stuck with it. It's a thing in motion, you know. There was a time when it was exciting to write a song for song's sake when you did not know it was going to sell. I think it would still be exciting. Records. I think it would still be exciting. I started one last week, the first one in months and months, because I just thought of something that happened in college that was really embarrassing. And just a bad choice that I made. It was this momentary thing, it was over in a heartbeat, but I just allowed someone to say something that wasn't cool to somebody who was, in a way, defenseless. And I just let it pass. And I always sort of thought how life would have been different if I had not acquiesced to that. Just one of those little moments that popped up and I went, oh yeah, her, and then these assholes came by and said, oh yeah, and what did I do? Nothing, I just kind of went to class. It's like, interesting, it would have been a good moment to have taken a stand and I didn't quite see it, I didn't catch it. So that's great that you still want to express it in a song, because you mentioned well, that you're writing poetry as well. I'd rather do that, because yeah. I don't have to write all that goddamn music then. But we love the music. Yeah, I, I do too. Once, yeah, I, I do too. It's just sort of daunting to look at because the songs keep getting better and more, in one way more complicated and in another way more direct, and they just they have to be better and better, and it's exhausting. Yeah, that's something we were talking about too. How the climate's changed so much, but when you feel like you're doing the best work you've ever done, singing better than ever. Hmm? really at the top of your game, knowing how to perform and play it and tell the stories, but somehow it's going over people's head because they just still want to hear New Kid in Town. They yeah. still want to hear the hits that remind them of who they used to be That's when it. that was so. Out. Yeah, it's just part of it. You're, the, you're there to help them remember who they used to be. Yeah. It's a strange job. I guess it's uh, we should have some sort of a license to do it, like a nursing license or something. Yeah, maybe that should be an, an extra job description that pays a little more than just writing a song. Some extra money, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. A little bonus. Songwriter, Hall of Fame inductee, and registered nurse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Well, I do give the audience bathroom breaks. I do now. So I do this an evening, an intimate evening with. So it's a long show. Sometimes it's two and a half hours. So I play for about an hour, and then I say, look, you guys are probably all over 21. If anybody needs to go pee, now is a good time to do it. <laughs> I'll see you in 20 minutes. That's good. And then I come back and just play as long as I want. And and do you enjoy it? Enjoy the uh, That part of it, sure. Yeah. Yeah, stage is like home. That's like... There are two things that are eminently comfortable with me, going to bed and getting on stage. Right, and, and we talked about that too, that those two and a half hours on stage feel like home, and then They're in fine. between all doing awful. all this traveling, staying yeah. in hotels... Not yeah. being with your dogs. Yeah, that's the worst. And going to airports. It's disgusting places, you know. Yeah. So what's happening now? What, what? We're talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really hot here in Nashville. It is. It's really, not in here, I hope. It's not, no. It's, okay, it's air-conditioned where we are. Yeah. And, uh, We're it, in the it, blue barn. Yeah, we're safe. And it's a beautiful day, but it is hot. And I guess... This is something you've lived with every summer for a long time. Yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah. It was almost offset by the fact that we used to have really pretty winters here. Mm -hmm. Really nice snow and get stuck coming up the driveway. 
couldn't get out for a few days and the pond would freeze over and we'd be skating on it it was it was trippy but those winters don't happen in this part of the south anymore so. mm-hmm. is that because of global warming <laughs> what do you think <laughs> <laughs> well so you also work with Larry maybe i Clark. should write a global warming song i've never considered that yeah so what brought you to working with larry very I just I think I just always wanted to and uh, Chuck Mitchell brought it up the guy who's head of Sony Music Masterworks mm-hmm. and we went great admired each other from afar for years great good idea and we liked all the same players and yeah because he has a big jazz his, background yeah. and, and, exactly. and you do too he's got which his I own never knew about crowd you. And, yeah, yeah it just fit in perfectly if you listen to the thing at the end of the Tenderness album is called Downtown Before the War. Probably the best song I've ever written, certainly the most autobiographical. And it's just these fantastic players playing amazing things. That sounds simple. And when you were going out without the orchestration, did it feel vulnerable and naked to not have that? Yeah, but I can play some of that stuff now. You can play the inversions and the harmonics. Oh, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, your guitar playing. You think I should great. use that in a, in a song about global warming? Like what? fancy chords and things? Yeah, fancy chords. Instead of all these open chords that all of us... Uh, we just want to hear the sound of your voice. That's a beautiful black Gibson. This was, uh, this particular one was a birthday present from Jackson Brown for my 50th birthday. I'm looking at a... Um, looks like an old Western movie poster, which is JD's birthday poster. From Lucy's El Adobe. Yes, a historic place. And it got better than that. Besides this amazing party that she and Jackson and Henley, uh, and I think Doheny had some part in it, and maybe Fred Wallachy. They just threw this amazing party. But Lucy was friends with Joseph Campbell, and so was also consequently friends with the Dalai Lama and several of the monks that would come to L.A. and do these sand mandalas. Mm-hmm. They'd go into like tough neighborhoods where there'd been a murder or something, and they'd paint these fabulous sand mandalas at an intersection, and people wouldn't touch them. They'd leave these guys alone for two days. And then the way that works in their religion is you have to pick up all the dust and blow it away. You have to, it's Nothing a trans- is precious. It's, yeah, not, it's, Everything's it's temporary. These fabulous things are just done, and then whew. So at any rate, at some point in the party, I hear this chanting coming from the kitchen, and, the, and someone's walking out with a cake with all these candles on it, and Lucy had gotten a dozen of these guys to come and chant me a blessing, these Tibetans. So, in the middle of this, all of us, you know, drinking margaritas and having fun, so this, with five, then six, then eight, then twelve voices in the varying pitches. Warren Zevon said to me, Jesus Christ, are those guys from Central Casting? (laughs) I said, no, they're the real deal, man. And he gave you that guitar? This is his present. Yeah, he and he and Fred Wallach were going to buy me a '57 Chevy, which is what I really wanted. And Henley was going to be on it too. But Henley bought me a really expensive painting from Japan. This kind of watercolor that I particularly love. So he felt like he'd already bought his present, and he had. And then uh, Fred Wallach had found a '57 Chevy. And somehow, dramatically, the price changed at the last moment, and there just weren't enough people to go in on it. Well, if you're a musician, you get more mileage out of a guitar than a car. Yeah, well, the joke is that I'd kind of, I'd had a 54, 55, 56, 58 Chevy. I'd never had a 57. 
I, I've learned a few things about you today that you love jazz, that you were a drummer. The songs are brilliant. <laughs> What's that? Their, their songs are brilliant. How could you not love them? Yeah, yeah. Make a point and they're quick. And you know, the, the, all the guys who play that, that shape of songs, they always call it 16 bars and the truth. Because mm-hmm. it's just this thing that doesn't change and they do it again. And sometimes it has a bridge, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the whole song, you know how you were talking about a song can be so infectious that it doesn't have to have a one, two, three, four chorus. Right. It can just, it can just live in a normal sort of breathing pattern. It doesn't have to hold its breath or take big strides. There are no hurdles. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're actually simple. Because it, that's, remember back in those days, music was taught in school. I had private music lessons in elementary school and art classes and, and, and great drama uh, and uh, dance and orchestra and big band. And we had a really well-funded, sensitive school system. It was, you know, then it was, it was all about developing every aspect of the kid, despite the fact that all of West Texas is football, football, football. Like, we're going to make an intellectual uh, library available to these kids as well. Is it still there like that now? I think no school, no public school system has a budget to do things it's like that It's not funded anymore. in the way it was when you were growing uh-uh. up. I mean, I, as early as sixth grade, most of my classes were music almost all day, or art. Is Amarillo, Texas, Texas a, a particularly intellectual, arty part? I don't know why it happened. It happened for a number of reasons. We had a genius guy there who was a ballet dancer. He and his wife were principal ballet dancers for the New York Ballet. And they decided they didn't want to tour. They didn't want to do that anymore. They wanted to teach. And I really think the guy just stuck his finger in a map and where do they need ballet the most? And so he came to Amarillo, Texas, and he started the Hess School of Dance. His name was... Uh, uh, Neil Hess, German, strange-looking guy, almost albino, big blonde hair and blazing blue eyes, and much too smart to talk to anybody in Texas. And he was a vegetarian, so in high school he ate lunch by himself with a paper bag. And he didn't talk to people because he thought it interfered with his digestion. He was a character, but he was a real. He, he was one of the guys that shaped me. He just made me kind of get out there and do it. You know. But yeah, the the. But all the music departments were good too, and in high school it was sensational. In college, this little Amarillo College had just one of the great geniuses of theory and composition teachers ever. So it was, it was available, and then plus at at home it was the playlist in my house. My family couldn't stand country music, so I heard opera and classical music and Sinatra, Sinatra, and Sinatra and Sinatra. And then I started bringing home Ray Charles. And my dad and I both listened to all the jazz guys. He had a hard time with Bop. That was a few too many notes for him. And then when Miles got cool, he came sort of back into the fold. And then, uh, miraculously, he was the only parent that went right along with the Beatles and all the things. Like, yeah, these guys are great. No problem. So completely supportive. Oh, yeah. I, I was allowed to play. I mean, my parents put up with screechy beginning violin, squeaking beginning clarinet, and then the thunder of drums for 10 years. Not a big house, you know. I was definitely encouraged to just play whatever I felt like playing. So then I went a lot of years where I fell into some sort of trap where I was playing what I was expected to play. And then one night on stage, I, I don't know what song it was. I think I was in Cleveland and I played... The 
is a Nat King Cole record. I learned mm-hmm. when I was eight. It's called Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Thought I'd visit the club. Got as far as the door. Couldn't bear without you. Don't get around much anymore. Take it without you Don't get around much anymore It's awfully different without you Don't get around much anymore I just played it and the audience went, what the? Yay! And I went, oh, really? So this is okay with you, huh? So they went, yeah, I was playing a place called Nighttown, a jazz club in Cleveland. So then I just went on a roll. I just went, all right, listen, if I, if I can play exactly what I want, I'll keep doing this. You know? So then I played, no one to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the shelf. Amy's behaving, saving all my love for you. I know for certain the one I love I'm through with flirting It's you that I'm dreaming of Ain't misbehaving I'm saving all my love for you Just like Jack Horner In a corner Don't go nowhere So why should I care Your kisses are worth waiting for I don't stay out late, I don't care to go I'm home about eight, waiting on a late show Late show, Amy's behaving I'm saving all my love for you No, I ain't misbehaving I'm saving all my love for On drums, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Isn't I never it? held a guitar till I was 22. I just wasn't getting any work as a drummer. So I went home to my dad's music store and said, I need a guitar. I brought back that Gibson Dove. I'd never even held a guitar. It's amazing. You and Henley both drums and singing at the same time. It's weird. Yeah. And that whole community, because I remember I was younger at the time, a little younger than you, a little younger than I am now, but I remember people, you know, would song doctor each other, like Jackson would oh, say. Oh, we all did, yeah. yeah. say, hey, what do, you, what do you think of this? And be like, yeah. well, you try this. this. Yeah. Try this. That's really good, but I don't know about going to the major six. Yeah. And do you, do you miss having that? Do you miss Yeah, having, oh yeah, sure. Because it would be... But it's kind of like missing, you know, having, uh, it's kind of like missing being 17. You're not going to get it back. So you just have to do something different right life changes as you say you can't go in the same part of the mm-hmm. river twice and the road beneath your feet is moving all the time mm-hmm. 
but it's good to have friends and it's good to have community. And one of one of the the downsides of making lots of money and being able to to have friends and, and having the life that you want is that people tend to get more complicated in their lives and it's and more dispersed and more I mean dis- think of it all, all those people that you mentioned before we all came together from disparate parts of this continent mm-hmm. and all dispersed back to those disparate parts and Emily yet lived in Dallas Glenn lived in New York Linda lived in back to Tucson now she's in San Francisco a bunch of people have died and you know everybody's living in a different place Bonnie lives up north and, and yet you you in conversation, you've brought up recent conversations with Linda, Amy Lou, Don, so and Jackson. So there is still that glue. Of, yeah, um, the golden history. thread is there, but we just we can't we don't hang out like we did because we don't hang out. Right. And when we do, it's probably because we got uh, squeezed or tempted into it or brushed up against it, like this thing Jackson did with uh, Leslie, you know, with Wadi's cousin. Uh, I don't know how it came about. It was something to do with the film, and they asked uh, one of them. I think probably asked her, and she asked him, and they went, "Sure." It was a, it was a project they were both uh, passionate about. So you, you got some new blood in that, you know. And she's pl- she's playing sort of like a Jackson Brown version of a, a you know whatever she sings, and he's trying to bend his a little bit. And, it's yeah, a beautiful it's, song. It's, it's nice. It's really nice. Yeah. I didn't know that she was related to Wadi. Oh yeah, yeah. And it very much like him, very opinionated. And yeah, she came to see me one night when I was playing in New York, and she said something. I don't know. We were texting the next day. Remember me? I, I, uh, I said, "Yeah, the cute girl in black." And she just said, "Always." It's <laughs> <laughs> all she wears. It's That's like Wadi with his uniform, you know. Yeah, it's good to have your your stage gear figured out for the road. Listen, mine mine is the next thing to neutral, somewhere between neutral and grave digger. It's like expensive charcoal gray suits that's my thing and once i put on the gray suit as far as i'm concerned i'm at work till i get back to my room it and is then a transformation. i don't want to hear fuck all from anybody and i'm back to my room i want to check on my dogs read something and, you know eat some cheap milk chocolate and go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah the chocolate the chocolate reward yeah the chocolate reward is big yeah and a room with a mini bar is, we're still like children. We still see the mini bar and go, oh. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's all crap, it's all overpriced, and the candy is $20 for a bag of M&Ms. And you can leave the room messy. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you stay there for four days, it's perfect every day. They come in and make it perfect. I think life should work like that. Yeah, we are big children. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I should be able to go to school, or skip school, like I used to do, and then come home and find my room all perfect. Yeah, so you are going on tour and... I am? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Well, you said you might be again soon. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I think I am. Yeah, so do do you feel like there's anything that could really excite you musically in the way that you used to be? Or is it a different um, time? Yeah, it's a different... I mean, I, I have to think of a project that I can be committed to for a year or something. I have to think of something that I can feel uh, passionate about for long enough to make it, whether it's a book or a movie or a play or what. Mm-hmm. And you can use old pieces. You know, you can always use parts of, all the parts of who you are work. 
You know, you just forget. I hope so. They do. You just you forget sometimes <laughs> yeah. that some don't work. Some but, some lay dormant until they're rediscovered. Yeah, you can you can poke around and find them. Didn't take much to wake them up. Yeah. But it's you know you gotta you gotta think it's worth the hassle because when they're awake they drive you crazy again just like they always did. You think? <laughs> I know. It. Or maybe <laughs> I mean, I'm just crazy and the, the, you know I'm they're driving but I was crazy anyway. Yeah, I mean I had that with my father growing up. When he was working on a project or songwriting, he would just get into a state where you you were happy he was writing, but you wanted him to be less manic. You yeah. Know? As a kid, I saw yeah. that dynamic. I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure my kid did too. You, Although you're saying I, your kid might see that in you? I think she probably did, but I wasn't... It was only for one brief period of time where I was really that obsessed with one project. It's the, the sextet record that I did it. Blackbird with a jazz group here, because I was doing that nothing but that for months, and then we played a show at the Bell Court, and I, we played a show at the Riverfront, and then that was kind of it because there was no support to take a six-piece band, three crew, and three girl singers on the road. It was just mm-hmm. not in my scheme of things because mm-hmm. we had had backing for this record company. It was my record company, and this guy in Texas promised us a lot of money, and then reneged. As it got closer to realizing that Barack Obama was going to be elected president, and he knew I was working for him, and all his racist tendencies came out, and he pulled the plug on a lot of stuff and and cut off all of his phones. We found one cell phone that still had a message on it of his, and it said, hey, this is, don't say what his name is, leave me a message unless you're a liberal. He had just lost it. So, wow. so I ended up footing the bill for. We were already pressing CDs, so I was like, Ron Stone and I were trying to figure out how to pay for it at that point. So it was just my money. How how much ahead of the planned tour was it that you found out? Um, we hadn't really planned a tour because we thought the record would, you know, open a couple of doors and then we could figure out how much we could spend. It was a big check. If this guy's given us the money he promised, uh, that was on the actual promissory note. We never mm-hmm. made a contract, but. What he suggested would have been more than enough to fund it for 18 months or something. Mm. Would have been fun. But it didn't happen, so I lost money, and we played one great show, which we cut live. I've released, half of it self-released it, but I still have a, a whole really cool live album that I own. And I own the, the masters of that one, too. But aside from that six months or so, I think I was around, I was pretty... I mean, Sarah and I are both not real hand. We're not helicopter parents, you know. Mm-hmm. We, and we got lucky. The kid got the best of somehow both of us. And, and that teaches a lot of resilience when you're not helicopter parents. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she was a headstrong kid, and we thought it was great that she was a headstrong kid. Mm-hmm. And now she's, you know, incredible dancer with her, you know, 15 years of awesome discipline doing ballet it's, it's fantastic work it's so much work to do that it's amazing the circle of you starting in a school that a dancer starts and says where can I bring <laughs> yeah. where can I bring the art it's funny because I, I can't dance never could but I, I, I love it I love uh, Linda Ronstadt kind of addicted me to ballet she used to take me to ballets and I, I had no idea they were that beautiful you know? and then you know as the circle of of life travels and intersects, I ended up raising a kid that fell in love with ballet. I love when you told the story of 
Larry Klein coming over when you were playing him songs for the record that you made together, and you were playing him things that you thought were unfinished. Yeah. And he was saying, "Leave that alone." <laughs> yeah, that's great. That, yeah. That's perfect the way it is. Yeah. And 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 you did. What, what do you think about that? That overthinking. Do you... I think it's better. The overthinking process is more efficient when there's two or three heads doing it. Mm-hmm. Because you keep canceling out the other person's bullshit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Politely, one hopes. So, although Don and Glenn and I were never very polite to each other, but it works. I mean, and we, we didn't doubt that we loved each other or that, right. we, were, that we were trying to if do the same thing. If there's love and trust, you can say, yeah, it just yeah, it's it, not gonna go nobody away. was going to go, oh, yeah, great, when it wasn't ever. Mm-hmm. So it's, and that's hard to come by nowadays. People seem to be really happy with anything that even just kind of works. And I'm always kind of going, well, not quite. Let's give it a minute. You know. Yeah. And and you said that you can still call some people and that you trust if Couple, you need to. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure they want to hear it. Although I always go play things for Linda. I, always, I trust her ear as much as any ear I've ever known. She just did nothing but pick great songs. I mean, she think about how responsible she is for Zevon's career and mine and Lowell George and the McGarrickle sisters. And she just kept doing, you know, greater records of our songs than any of us did. And it was, it was remarkable. Yeah. Peter attributes the same talent to her as being fantastic at picking songs. Yeah, she's, she was unerring about it, though. She just picked so many good songs. Zevon and I talked about it for a period of time after I built the house up on in Nichols Canyon. He'd come up there and we'd talk about just what had happened during this period of our songwriting where we were doing one thing, but someone who was doing something else was doing a great job mm-hmm. with the material we were writing. Well, you had one of the world's greatest singers singing Indeed. I, great I, songs. I agree. I, I almost mention it every night just that way, too. Because I'm probably do five songs in the set that she recorded. And so at some point I always say, and you know, you, you know at least one of the records of this song, because it was sung by who, to me, was the greatest voice of my generation. They always know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I feel like I have to ask because we talked about this a little bit. No, the time where everything was exploding all at once, starting with the Eagles writing a song and it's exploding and it's selling 10 million copies. It was a time in California life in Los Angeles where it was was very patriarchal. It was in some sense, although you're talking to a guy whose life was largely uh, constructed both in love and career around strong women singers. Mm-hmm. So I, I never thought of myself as being much of the... I was always as resistant to the patriarchy of the business part of it mm-hmm. as, as any of them. I don't know as much about the music because I can't see myself from the outside. But, you know, if you're, if you're primarily working with Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt, and, you know, hanging out with Joan and Carol and Nicolette Larson as a hit. I mean, I was just, they're great women mm-hmm. all around me doing great music and doing great records of my songs. So I was just happy to... You, you definitely had the reputation as being a heartbreaker. I only remember being alone most of the time. I'm not sure how that happens. But 
Well, I think it. I think it's meant in a in a, a complimentary uh, way. I, yeah, I think it is. I'm still mystified by it, but yeah. Yeah. I've never picked up a woman in a bar in my life. I would have no idea what to do. Well, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is great, and the troubadour. It's pretty I mean, good. That's yeah. a, you know, that was a. You should cook me dinner. I don't even know where that came out. I was just looking at her. She looked real cute. She had on that kind of see-through blouse and no shoes, and I just went, I, I need to know this woman. Well, that was bold. It turned out to be a good move. Very good move. <laughs> it did, yeah. The you know the life in the fast lane. You were really living that. Seems like getting it. that house with the show and you know oh, yeah. in Malibu. Yeah, and wrecking Lotus sports cars and. Oh yeah, there's a picture of a. Yeah, there's a picture of a tall Lotus that I was driving here. And you're the only one I know who still drives a stick shift. Yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I. Um, I need to pay attention when I'm behind the wheel. It helps me pay attention. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan came to my house once in the 90s. The house I built, we were, we were supposed to write a song. Oh, God, get this. I haven't thought of this. We were supposed to write a song for a Michael Mann action movie. Mm-hmm. I think Su- uh, Suzanne Mann and Debbie Gold put this together. If you can imagine Bob and I writing a, clo- a theme song for a big action movie, for a Michael Mann movie. So I said, sure, and he said, sure. I said, do you want me to come out to Malibu? He goes, no, I'll come to your house. So he comes to the canyon, and we see him, let him in the gate. A little blue Toyota pickup or something pulls in, and he comes popping down to the house. And Melanie Gold, Andrew's sister, was my assistant then. And I said, so go fetch Bob and tell him which way we're going, bring him downstairs. And so he comes down to the studio, and you know he's a dog nut. He loves dogs. So my the black dogs are down there, so that's all we did all afternoon was play with the dogs. We tried one time to sort of attach two things that each of us had written together. <laughs> I was like, why are we doing this? <laughs> let's, let's get some food and play with the dogs some more. But he did this this cool thing where he had this little spiral notebook, one of those long kind, the short, the kind of fit in your pocket where mm-hmm. the spiral's on the horizontal plane mm-hmm. on the top. And he said, you got any titles? And I said, yeah, I guess I got some titles. You got any titles? He said, oh yeah, I got some titles. So he pulls out this little thing, and it, it just keeps reading off titles. And every time he read one off, he look up at me. I'm gonna read another one. See off. if they get a reaction. Yeah, and I was thrilled because it was just like anybody else. And some of them were horrible. Some of them were just boring. And then now and then one was just dazzling and brilliant. And one was almost there. And then one was something we'd done before. And then the next one would be stunning. And then there'd be two really dumb ones. And it was just like, yeah, they're just titles. That's what that's the way you do this, you know. So yeah. I rattled off a couple of titles, so we tried to put these two things together, and it didn't work very well. So we just, you know, smoked and played with the dogs. Oh, he yeah. had someone driving him. He had a girl out in his pickup truck. And we were down in the studio for a couple of hours, and Melanie finally says, you know, there's a girl sitting in the driveway on the other side of the pool house, on the other side of the garage, in a pickup truck. And I went, what? <laughs> so I said, Bob, he said, oh, to Susie, what does she do? She drives. I said, well, let's, you know, she can come in. Melanie's got the whole top floor of that. No, it's okay. She drives. So I said, Melanie, go out and see if she wants a sandwich or something. You know. So I said, I, th- I said, so you don't drive anyway? He said, well, I said, I, I heard you you riding your motorcycle out on the point, you know, on Point Doom, you know. And he said, well, yeah, but you got to pay attention. Motorcycle. I said, a car. Uh, he said, uh, how do you put it? I get caught up or something like that or. I get I forget what I'm doing. I lose I lose track. That's what he said. I lose track when I'm driving. 
It's yeah. not a good thing when you're I know, driving. No, <laughs> I know what you mean. So I like these fast cars that have lots of, that have to shift and steer. And, and reactive. Yeah. 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 Definitely. But I can't do it with my dog, so i got to have a little wagon for, you know, I'm the opposite of the, well, almost the same. I guess if I move to Montana or New Mexico, I'll be one of those guys. I'll have a truck for the place in the country and a Subaru for the dogs, you know. That's kind of the way you do it. Because you got to have something that won't break down, yeah. ever. I'm thinking about just songs versus records. Because it seems like a lot of your songs, they're really meant for voices. They're, they're meant to be sung. You know, I mean, Linda made. So. You think? Linda and Peter made great records. And you made great records of them. Thank you. But you yeah, the songs really are in the way that people did songs before, where they're just handed they're down. They're supposed to be sung. Yeah. They're supposed to be sung. I'm leaving it all up to you. You decide what you're going to do. So if you want my love, I'll walk with you. Yeah, going all day like that. You know? Yeah, that, that's a good thing, and you could do that without a band. Yeah, Keep songs that are meant to be sung. It's yeah. one of the great things about the Beatles stuff. You hear those songs. You don't. I mean, the records are fantastic, and they're the best. They were the, this the ultimate simple rock and roll band in history. Mm -hmm. And then they got all the studio gadgets and made the most complicated, great records. But they were always rockers, you know. And they always wrote songs that made sense. So you can sing any of those Beatles songs if you can't play anything. And they still make perfect, they're great songs, you know. It doesn't matter how obscure they are. Everybody's got something to hide Except for me and my monkey. Yeah. They all do something. They don't just sit there like a lox. Yeah. Some of these new songs just da 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 or where the music at least it has some ambition to it. You know? Otherwise, it just sounds like listing things, which some of it is. That's part of the rap thing is to name names, you know? Mm -hmm. It seems like a really lazy thing to do if you're not going to actually put a piece in it that's got some music to it. It's as unsatisfying to me as sort of lame jazz ballads from the 40s. Like, come on, you know, put some edge on it somewhere, you know? Well, emotionally, it's not satisfying if things don't have... If they don't rise and fall and there's not you light know. and dark and opposites, if it's just the same, you go to sleep when you're listening. You do. They're also, they're also in, they're traveling in a vehicle that has a huge bass resonance. So that's a real component. Whether the earbuds or, God help you, in a car behind you or something, you're going to hear all those subwoofer notes that weren't even available in 1975 mm -hmm. or 85. You couldn't get those notes on anything. Subwoofers didn't work for that that way, and analog recording doesn't work that way. And you know, on, on vinyl, the needle would just bounce out of the groove. It's it's not designed to do that. I mean, it, there's a way to cover for it now, but that's a recent technological development in music that has compromised another area of music. I was talking to my son about that in the car over here. He played me a song he'd written, and he had two mixes of it, 
And when he played the new one, I said, is this the same song you played me yesterday? He said, yeah, here's the mix from yesterday. No bottom, no huh. bass, all voice, and it was like a different song. And yeah. it, it's, it's a thing where you have fake strings sometimes <laughs> on a demo, and the voices sound amazing on it, yeah. and then you go cut it, and you get you know, high-fidelity sounding drums and strings on it, and suddenly the voice gets smaller. It's all about the vocal. It is. It better be. I mean, it's it's some other kind of music. Otherwise, it's like uh, I don't want to name any names, but it's like this soft jazz, mellow jazz stuff. That's not even jazz. It's just played. It's uh, what uh, resort music I call it. Mm -hmm. Cruise ship music. You know. Something to play in the lounge that you can drink. And, uh, if you like pina colada. So, something that just doesn't demand. It doesn't pull on you. It just gives you a sort of a soothing basis to have a shallow conversation. I was listening to a mix of something I did recently, the instrumental mix, and I couldn't believe how much space the vocal took up when the vocal was gone. You know? Yeah. It was just a great lesson in that it's really all about the story. It is, but the, you have to walk this magical line. If you listen to some of this on a big uh, system, if you listen to some of the 60s R&B, some of the stuff that your mom wrote and, and that Barry and Cynthia wrote and then Mike and or Doc Palmas wrote these great songs you couldn't turn the vocal down anymore and still have a record it's sitting exactly where it's supposed to be because it's monaural they're doing everything at once the players are trying to play to what's being done there wasn't just this stacking of stuff so that you could make a this cave around a vocal and, then, and shape that any way you want it was everybody working together that's what's so magical about those early Ray Charles records it's just him and that seven piece band in the studio doing everything live and you know, it's uh, there's no substitute for that kind of energy. There's different kinds of music, but you can't uh, copy that energy with a bunch of overdubs. You want to talk about how you write a song? <laughs> I don't know how I write a song. I know how I wrote The Bridge to Faithless Love. It was an accident. Was, okay, tell me. I was me. playing an E, and I had this great intro, which has a couple of key changes in that nobody, so this song's all in E flat. Go to the four chord like you always do. Gonna put a little diddle in there. Da, six minor, which is an easy place to go for a pop song. You hammer this. And take the melody up a little bit. And then back in the safe at home. No. Do 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 do. Do 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 And then you put something in, no one's heard before. Da, da, And what would you do for the bridge in a completely different key? I'm standing back to the same broken dream. It's only in a different key from one bar. Never renew. Never turns out like it seems. It's the feeling comes and goes. So the, the only thing that's really different about it is that a lot of times over these really interesting voicings is that the melody is not in the chord. That's a very jazz thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. See, so when you... Well, you think about those guys that, like uh, who's Freddie Green, like the all-time jazz rhythm player, played with Count Basie and everybody. What they had to do was... 
rest of the band was playing all the. They've got a bass going boom, 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 boom. So they're just picking. They're muting a lot of strings, and they're just picking a couple of notes that sound good. Everybody knows it's a C minor seven, but you just use it using the notes that you like in that chord. And then there's probably a horn section doing something there, and there's a keyboard, there's a piano player. So guitar wasn't this way we learned. It was this big open chord, throaty things. This could be in tune. I apologize to the listeners, but I'm too lazy to tune it. It's 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 amazing too, you know, the whole label of soft rock. We were followed by. Uh, X, <laughs> so that was considered edgy, you know. And it just to us, it just sounded like sloppy yelling. It was fun to watch. I told you, I used to go get drunk and watch those guys play. They were just fun, you know. Yeah. And they had this was. attitude, like jumping up and down. Yeah, the punk rock. Yeah. So then ours became soft. I don't know what that means, you know. Melodic. Yeah. Something with something with a melody. S- singable. Yeah. I was thinking about her town too another town song <laughs> oh well everybody's got to live in a town sometime yeah. in their life yeah it was about somebody it, but it's it's considered to be rare that somebody can write a song a, a divorce song about what it's like yeah. after that and that was a real insight and we wrote it in a night that was Waddy's idea yeah yeah James and I were just hanging and Waddy were hanging out at my house and Waddy keen to catch an opportunity said hey let's write a song and James and I both just went, why? You know, <laughs> what about? And he said, and named the person we wrote the song about. I went, okay. And we just, so Waddy started playing this little pretty riff. Mm-hmm. James and I weren't even holding guitars. We didn't really want to write a song. So we just started singing back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. Thus was it writ. Waddy made it happen. So how was New Kid in Town written? Uh, I had the chorus for about a year before I played it for anybody. And it was getting sort of Cuban. I, uh, I think... Uh, Jorge Calderon was in my band then. Yeah. I played with him recently, actually. He's the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just taking on a more Cuban vibe, just the chorus. And then when, when they were get, when uh, the Eagles were getting ready to do Hotel California, we had our usual pre-album meeting. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? I said, well, I've been playing this. Johnny, come And Henley just went, stupid. Here's our first single, you know. Let's write a story for it. Big single. Very big single. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. So is that how the Eagles would work? Yeah. What well, do we what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. I got a piece. You know, that might fit with this, or let's just work on that one. Not this one tonight, but that one. Mm-hmm. And the Eagles were famous for taking a lot of time in the studio, perfecting. A lot of time things. writing too. That uh, that song I think took about a year to write. Really. Yeah. Just kept changing lyrics? Or? Yeah, a little here, a little there, and they were doing a whole album, so there was other stuff to work on, and they're slow, mm-hmm. and real exacting and precise. And uh, Yeah, I think from the time I first played it at Glenn's house at, on his picnic table, uh, it was sort of our workstation, yellow legal tablets and this long table. Probably it was, took a year. Till we actually, till he did that amazing vocal of it, which I wasn't there for. I was there when they were rehearsing it, and uh, then I was not in Florida the night they did that vocal. And I was back working on Victim of Love, but I missed, wasn't there the night they did the vocal to uh, New Kid in Town. 
It's an amazing vocal. Will you play some of the songs from the one with the the jazz, the sextet? Uh-huh. Just, just you know, some of those changes. Hmm. Maybe, hmm. maybe some you play on tour that. Eyes of Krishna turning red Even the Buddha said I may be gone a while Don't forget to smile On your journey down the Nile A little history lesson about civilization And patriarchy these are, I'm playing the simple open position the simple chords. simple yeah. versions of them. So how many songs have you got sitting around now? Not a few hundred, I don't know. Unrecorded <laughs> ones? Not finished. I mean, I have almost this many boxes of lyrics. And when I, sometimes I just write something I like and I dig into one of those boxes. Since people can't see the boxes. Boxes, moving boxes. I'm looking at 16... I don't yeah, have that many like lyrics. Twenty-three boxes. But I got about six of those boxes full of just lyrics and journals and writing. That's what's in, that closet is locked behind there. And alarmed. <laughs> so it's it's really feeling the need to want to do it. Something. A project worthy of finishing. Yeah, worth even tuning for. <laughs> Well, you know, you said it's odd to do a single, like you want to do a whole album. Yeah, I could think that other way. I've been thinking about this. I could think about trying to just do, say it in three or four minutes, but I, I heard somebody say the other day, some new artist uh, that has a big hit record, I, I can't listen to a song for more than three minutes, I get bored. I just thought, Is it wow. because the record's... Not that good, it's, it's not that good. I mean, if it was... I don't know. I didn't have a value judgment on hand, but I just thought, what an odd thing to say. Yeah, I think the reason people do singles is because it's less of an investment. Far less. We have no attention spans anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at this, we walk around listening to music on these little earbuds that are exploding inside our ears. Yeah, you know, sometimes the only people I can get to listen to a new song are the co-writers 
<laughs> after I've cut the song. And even yeah. then, it takes a long time to get their attention. Did you hear it yet? Did you hear it yet? So it, it, it really comes down to you got to do it for your own heart. Do it for yourself. I do it so that I can turn it up loud later and be proud of it. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the reason for doing it, is to get it all finished and come home and put it on these big tannoys or big JBLs and turn it up really loud. And, and I dance around in my kitchen. I think I just sit there and bask. <laughs> Though I've been known to throw a stop and lock now and then. Yeah. Yeah, I pretend I'm on Soul Train or something. You know, <laughs> do crazy dances. Yeah, I'm more than Marley. Minimum, minimum motion, you know. And I don't want to be caught doing the white man's overbite. Yeah, you know? that's true. So hands, really hands stay below the waist. <laughs> you really, yeah, you know. Please stop that waving around, Cracker. Yeah, I mean, there's a piano over there, too. You probably play a bunch of tunes on the piano. It's probably a lot more in tune than this. Yeah. Yeah, so when you're playing live, you play it on the piano, too? Both, yeah. Over? yeah. Do I you have, have a preference? two guitars that are tuned, actually, on stage. <laughs> yeah, so no, you know. I don't have a preference. I just wander around and play whatever I feel like. But in terms of writing and inspiration, do you feel... Well, there's more notes available over there, and they're always in tune. Well, it's got the same amount of notes, but mm -hmm. it's... <laughs> Every really. note that's on the piano is somewhere on the guitar. No. It goes way lower than that. I mean, yes, there's only seven notes, so yeah, seven tones, so in, in our scale... You're talking about range. That is, the, that is the only orchestra in a box. The only orchestra in a box, yeah. Now that's I hear Yamaha's made one that has actual strings, but you can't hear it unless you turn it on. It sounds terrifying. It sounds like the end of the world to me. Well, so you think you're gonna? You know, play I met clarinet? Victor Borga when I was four years old. Really? Mm hmm In a train station in Cleveland. My father was working for MCA. Victor Borga was an MCA agent. He babysat me while my mom went and made train arrangements for us. And what did your dad say? I said, "This is my son, and Dave. This is Victor Borga. He'll be back in a few minutes." So you were called. David. Yeah, well, he was, he was Johnny and I was Dave. So you took both names. I am both names. John David is my name. And I don't know who started calling me JD or where that came from. I'm always a little disheartened to hear it. It sounds very professional. It sounds like Beyonce or something. Do you like John David better? Yeah. When you call oh. on the phone, your full name comes up. I'll always, have you know. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, well, any other songs you want to break down or are you good? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what this chord is? So how do I do that, huh? That's great. I, I don't know what key that's in, but I... Well, if it was I a normal tuning, it would be E to G. E. Yeah, it's Prisoner. Yeah. It, it, it's very amazing, amazing sections in that song, too. I stop there. 
place to ever ride. Back down and I like those operatic changes, you know. I like the big, big moves. And when you're singing it, there's a Roy Orbison-esque way that it happens, too. It doesn't feel like opera. It feels soulful. And I guess he sounds like opera to me. I think everybody thinks that. Tom Petty said to him once when we were doing a Wanderers mix, he said, you know, you might be the best rock and roll singer that ever lived. And Roy said, yeah, I might just be. <laughs> Confident. Well, he doesn't sound like anybody else. He's got that, you know, he probably could sing opera. Although, go see the Pavarotti documentary. It's the best documentary ever made. I can't wait. It's Luciano Pavarotti is mesmerizing. The whole audience was crying in this thing, listening to him sing the Nessun Dorma. And, oh, I can't wait. It's too good. When you go to that change there, it's, again, it comes down to confidence because you got to be bold and you got to be confident to be yeah. bold. You know, uh, it helps. If you hear great music, you're more likely to write great music. It's like books. If you want to write great, you got to read great. You know? So what were you, you listening to besides the opera. jazz records and the opera? You can't read fluff and write serious literature. Mm hmm So were you doing a lot of covers ever besides the well, jazz? Well, the band that I... I had two bands in Amarillo. The rock and roll band made money. We just did covers. Mm-hmm. The jazz trio made no money. We played great. We were in ninth grade, and we were really good jazz musicians. So we played art galleries and like ladies' clubs for past the hats. It was horrible, you know. But we were really good. I mean, the jazz bows thought we were the coolest. But the rock and roll band played like fraternity parties and dumb shit, drunk gigs. We got a lot of money. And then you you had that band with Glenn. Well, that was in L.A. That was we were serious about becoming musicians then. That was for real. The other was just school days. You know? mm -hmm. Though we were really serious musicians, probably more so when we were 12 than we were at 17. Yeah, probably. I was really great jazz drummer when I was 13 or 14. I, I was playing with 40-year-old guys who thought I was amazing. And then and it gets, I ended up being a half-assed guitar player. But it's, it's not about that. It well, became about the songs. Sort of, yeah. Not sure that's. I'm not sure which, whether that's progress or not. Well, do you need to woodshed in your? I wish. You be the best, you know, yeah, player, would, or rather, do you want yeah. to write no, songs I, built to last? I'd rather be Itzhak Perlman. Little fiddle in a case, mm -hmm. all the music in the world in your head, and able to read anything. Yeah, that's what I'd rather. Be. Well, do you give yourself a hard time that you're not able to? Kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I had a lot of promise in that area, which I didn't fulfill in that area. Isn't that an amazing thing that, you know, we have these mm. goalposts mm. and then we far surpass someone else's goalposts. Yeah, in a different game. <laughs> but we just keep saying, no, I didn't quite hit that yeah. thing that I wanted to hit. In a different know? field. The first thing I played on the violin was a Mozart gavotte, my first recital in fourth grade. And I, I think I was kind of good. I was definitely enough that people were thinking of me as a prodigy if I would practice, but I hated practice. And then I switched to clarinet the next year because I wanted to play tenor sax because I was in love with jazz. But tenor was a pretty big instrument. It's one in the case right there. I played mm -hmm. last week. But I, I saw, but tenor and and clarinet are the same finger. They're both B flat instruments, exactly the same fingering. Clarinet mm -hmm. small, so I got a clarinet. Played clarinet for a couple of years. Grew into tenor size. Got a tenor. 
was wailing along at that and then this I met these two jazz guys in middle school and they needed a drummer uh, so I took the drummer, a kid's drum kit home I learned how to play it and then came back to school and said I'm tired of being second chair clarinet I want to be the tempanist and the band director said you crazy we have a tempanist and I said yeah but he can't tune I sit in front of him it's horrible he's out of tune all the time because, you know, you have to tune timpanis. That would be a fun deal. So I said, just give me the audition. He goes, well, you're clarinet. I said, I'm, let me audition for timpani. I'll, I'll beat everybody at it. So I became a timpanist. I was one of those nerds. I was, I, was, I was a good reader. I got a one at contest one year for sight reading. I never practiced. I just happened to be a good reader. Can you sight read melody? Not very well. Yeah. Then I was, yeah, I was writing clarinet, so I was just reading one staff. Mm-hmm. You know, piano's two staff. If you're a conductor, you've got eight staffs going by you. Four or eight, because you're watching the whole orchestra. But yeah, pianist is two staffs, and they've all got their own little place to play. Cellos and French horns are C clef. That's alto clef. So what would be your Desert Island Records songs that you would want to uh, always hear? I have hear? no idea. I have probably Randy Newman. There you go. <laughs> Everybody loves Randy. Yeah. Yeah, you can't not. If I had to have one musician, it would probably be it would be him or Bach, I'm sure. If it was one piece, uh, Bach probably. It'd be the cello suites or the Goldberg variations on the piano. If it was one album, yeah, that's what it'd be. People have been making music for a long, long time, beating on cave walls and drums and you know, animal skins stitched over logs and uh, chanting things and. Mm -hmm. something in us wants to get out and surpasses lots of different phases and culture and even yeah. the medium we hear it on it doesn't matter the songs seem to go on regardless well we're in the I mean maybe everybody says this as, as they enter a new um, I don't know era of music or something but it's changing so fast now and it changes through technology in a way that I don't know if it, com well, it compromises the music, maybe not all in a bad way, but it changes into something that's commodified and then miniaturized and then democratized to the extent that there's kind of a little bit of good stuff available to everybody everywhere all the time, but it doesn't really sound that great because it's just these things stuck in your ears, you know? So it sounds pretty good because it's what you're used to and that's the way music is made knowing that that's the way you're going to hear it for the most part. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't involve you in a way that sitting down in front of 45 minutes of you know a Dylan album on a great sound system or you know an opera on a great sound system or going to a concert where people are playing fabulous music for two hours it, it doesn't have that effect you know it's like the difference between going to a food court with fast food or sitting down and having yeah. a beautiful meal well you just you pop your earbuds out right now and it would be a different world mm -hmm. with no music in it mm -hmm. is it raining it was supposed to. Yeah. I see rain. Yeah, it is. It is drizzling. Pop-up thunderstorms, they call them. Pop All up? summer long in the south. Yeah, pop-up. They just pop up and disappear. Happens until September. You know, all those years I lived in the canyons, I never had a, a mudslide or a fire. My house didn't even... I mean, during the earthquake, I talked to Don Henley right after it, and I said, how's, how's everything over? He was at the other end of Mulholland. and I said, how are things over there? And he goes, God damn it, man. He said, my kitchen is nothing but crystal and hot sauce. Broken crystal and hot sauce. How's your house? And I said, oh, uh, I hate to tell you, just nothing happened. A stack of CDs fell over. 
Were you went, a nickel you son of a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. It just I was on a real solid piece of granite mm-hmm. and it just didn't move and a lot of stuff around me moved, but my house didn't. Just that happened in, in when I was a kid, it's seventy one earthquake. And we were between how we were moving into a house and that house only had it had this kind of roundish room with all these bottles on it. We hadn't moved in yet, but all those bottles were there and we went to check it. Not one of them had fallen down. It was on top of the hill on a piece of solid yeah. rock. Well, if you notice, I still live on a hill. I'll always live on a hill. I've had three mm-hmm. houses in a row on a hill. I believe in the higher ground. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. You ain't going to catch me in no floodplain. Yeah, there you go. Mm-mm. Well, I thank you for and I having, thank you. Me, having me here. This is like a non-interview interview. It's like just hanging out. and. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to... How did you encourage me to play guitar out of tune so many times? Was that my I, I, idea? Well, yeah, I didn't I didn't. I mind. thought we were going to be in the big house where the guitars are tuned somewhat. Well, <laughs> you want to tune up and play them all again? I don't, I don't think, think so. so. No, it's 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 just great hanging with you and talking. It's great hanging with you too. Yeah. Sometimes the myth outlasts the always the truth. It's the last lines in the, one of the great westerns, "The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance." Mm-hmm. When the legend conflicts with the truth, print the legend. It was a newspaper guy on a train going back to D.C. after James Stewart has gone back to his uh, hometown where. Uh, He's given credit for killing Lee Marvin, Liberty Valance, the baddest guy in the territory. Mm-hmm. But in fact, John Wayne shot him. It's an interesting concept, that thing about legend and truth. So I got running through my head now is the bass line to the Al Green song. Take me to the river. You can't make that in a box because that was those five guys doing that thing. Yeah, it's hard to do that in a box. Maybe we'll be able to. I don't know. I'm game to try, but there's something about being in a room full of guys with actual tape running and, you know, horns splatting into a, a, you know, a ribbon there's microphone. There's something about being in a room with live musicians, and, and it's just there's a magic that happens, and guys and girls, by the way. Do you know my first band in L- after... No, after Glenn and I broke up, and he was out doing the Eagles, and John Hartman and Elliot Roberts helped me put together my first band. It was called J.D. and the Boys, and it was me and this fabulous-looking, really big girl fiddle player. Mm-hmm. And David Jackson playing bass, always played bass with me. It's called JD and the Boys. And the, the most stunning thing on stage was this girl violinist, and she was killer. I don't know what happened to her. She went off and got some kind of deal with another girl after I went off to play by myself. But that was my, uh, I insisted on having this band with a. The boys had a girl and the boys. Yeah, the, the boys, yeah. Yeah. That was the point. We were going we were, we were to be a band for everybody. It's great playing with musicians, and that, and you know, it's great to play solo for the song's sake, for the storytelling, and for the affordability of being, <laughs> affordability. Able to do, being able to travel and not actually pay to play. Yeah. But there's something also magical when you have a couple musicians on stage. Oh, it's 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 magical, and it lets me relax. I just sit back into it, and don't have to play as much, and don't have to work as at, at, as hard at this. And I never play piano because I'm a brilliant piano player. So I get to just sing ballads and not even play sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sing, you know, sometimes a song of mine, some, certainly some of these old ballads from the 40s and 50s, I just don't even play. And, and I sing better when I don't have to think about what I'm doing with this 
wrench in my hand. And you have to look down and make sure. Look at the neck. I don't have to do that as much anymore. I sort of learned all these 40s and versions so I could play them without looking at the neck because I was just getting a sore neck and I felt like it wasn't a good show because my, look at the my show is the audience is black and there's a spotlight on me and that's it. Yeah. So I got to be doing it right and not jumping around. I got to be really delivering a focused good thing to, yeah. to everybody. You know? Well, I hope to see a show soon. I hope you do too. We're yeah. still trying to figure out how to do one together. That would be great. I, I know. love that. Well, it keeps coming up. I, I hope it comes up with you as often as it does with me. I think of it all the time. And then now and then, when I haven't thought of it for a while, I'll get an email for you or something. Hey, what, <laughs> wouldn't this be a good... I'll keep bringing yes, it Yes, it's up. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you have to learn go to and play, buy some records. You have to play all those chords. <laughs> I'll learn them. I can play them. I worked hard to be able to do this show by myself. I couldn't have done this five years ago. I couldn't have carried the musical weight of even my own songs, much less all these sort of... I, I started to say standards or classics. I guess my songs are now standards. I guess I'm old enough. I'm in the great American songbook. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. You know when it hit me? What? When I was, it was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I went, I'm in Johnny Mercer's Songwriter Hall of Fame, the guy who wrote Dream. One of the greatest songs ever written. I used to listen to my dad walk around the house singing, Dream when you're feeling blue. Dream when they might come true. Beautiful songs with soaring melodies. And Johnny Mercer wrote that by himself. And it, he's the, he started the Songwriter Hall of Fame. If they're good and well-built, as he said. Yeah, let's hope that the, the payment device continues to work in our favor at least a little bit. Yeah, know, we're, we're, we're working on that. We are working on it. We always have people in Congress talking to them, and it inches down the field a little bit, and then yeah, gets set back a little bit. NSAI it, yeah, it's NSAI and Yeah, and Well, and they're a small player in that group. Yeah. ASCAP has been there for years, walking the halls. and The problem is we have to do it the old-fashioned way. We have to make sausage just the way they do. Because when we were just walking the halls and talking to people, it was always the same people that saw us, you know? Mm -hmm. They were people that already had signed lyrics on the wall, and... They were songwriter fans. It didn't move the needle with any of the people that were uh, being lobbied by the big companies. It does drive me crazy when I'm on Spotify and I hear something I like and I can't on Spotify find out who wrote the song. No, you can't. And it, we don't get paid for shit for that either, you know? Who wrote this song? Yeah. I want to know who wrote this song. We get, you know, that's, that's the worst money. My God, that's worse than, than Sirius XM. Uh, Tom McGuane sent me an email once from Montana. He said, hey, man, what you doing? I said, I'm oh, thinking about coming out to fly fish. What are you doing? He says, I'm listening to the JD channel on Spotify. I said, great, Tom. That pays me about as well as me buying your books in a used bookstore. And he kind of went, oh, right. I said, no, I'm not knocking it. You keep listening. But, you know, if you don't buy the records, none of us get paid. It hadn't really hit him, but, oh, yeah, damn. Yeah. Well, people don't realize it. No, the not. general public doesn't they're just know. Just listen to music. They're not doing anything wrong. They're happy that they're appreciating the music yeah. and that it's very easily available. But don't realize that we're in the back, yeah. doing all this work. In a little. sense, they're not doing anything wrong. In the other sense, they're like the uh, uh, I don't know. They're like the the so-called innocent end of child pornography. You know, they're like the innocent twelve-year-old model who doesn't think about the fact that there's a room full of guys, you know, drooling over a thousand miles away. 
It's, the reverse of that in music is there's all these wonderful people listening to music. They don't realize that way back in the little room somewhere, we worked hard on the song and we're actually not getting paid for it. It's like going to buy something at the Gap and not realizing that there's child labor making the thing that you're wearing that looks yeah. cool. To be responsible and pay attention. Where's this plastic going? Where's this straw going? Where's this toothbrush going? You know. But oh where's that God. global warming song with all the um, with yeah. all the tunes? With, with jazz chords, yeah. And the toothbrush <laughs> and the straw. Yeah. The global warming tune. Oh God. You said it was this, going back to. I the told beginning. somebody. Uh, Two weeks ago, in a half series in an interview, fortunately stopped me. I said, you know, Moon River was a song about global warming. And he went, really? Yeah. <laughs> sure. And he went, oh, right. Oh, you're having me on. I said, well, I don't know. It could have been. I just thought about it. Moon River, wider than a mile. That's an interesting spin. It was only half a mile last year. But here come the glaciers of night. Bangladesh is over. Calcutta's underwater. <laughs> New York's next, and who knows where we go from here. Mercy, mercy me. Bye-bye, Miami. Yeah, mercy, mercy me was the ecology. Yeah. I like songs that are from the point of view of being a human in that situation rather than preaching in an intellectual yeah, way no, where you're in it where don't you're you ever wonder it. what can you get away with though What's where's that line between like just telling a story that you know wants to make a point and, and preaching and trying too hard that's hard there's no preaching and I woke up in the morning and it's hotter than it usually is and the air conditioning's on you know three months later than it used to be I mean if you write it from the point of view of what it's like to be a human being yeah. experientially rather than preaching it intellectually, how can anyone argue with it's what it's like to be alive in this time? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'll Either you're going to write it or I'm going to write it. Or we're both going to write it. <laughs> Maybe we take 10 years write to write it. it. <laughs> no, no. We, we, we have to start doing things in three, four weeks. Life's getting shorter. It's, it's just better. <laughs> it's just more efficient. We're in an era where it's going to be released two weeks from Friday and, you know, old news, eight weeks. What's the, what's the, the song that little Naz has now? Uh, one Horse Town or something like that? It's been number one oh, for yeah. 14 weeks. Really great record. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I was just going to say one thing. You were talking about all the chords in all these jazz songs. You said, oh, you'd have to learn all those chords. Yeah. I would write songs that I'd be convinced I didn't know how to play. Me, I've done shows. that all my life. And then you learn them, and then you know them. And that you don't even know what they That song from Prisoner are. in Disguise, when I was showing that to Grolnick, and Don Grolnick said, what is that? And I said, wait a minute, stop the presses. Waddy, did you hear that? Don Grolnick just said, what is that chord? And Sanborn said, ah, oh, it's one of Souther's fucking Puccini chords. I don't know. <laughs> and so then Donna went, oh, of course, I know exactly what it is. But uh, theoretically. But I didn't know what it was. You didn't know what it was. Why he said, go write it, go, just go write it down for me. And I went, oh. And you're writing down each okay. note. Okay. Yeah. And putting a slash and the bass note on the bottom. No, I actually annotate the notes in the chord. So you know something is an A augmented. Yeah, I just write all the notes down. <laughs> And make sure that I put, put what's in the bass, because yeah. that's actually what makes that chord the. That's what I Gives do. it the heft, is it? Has the bass drums. That's on. important. Yeah, that that's crucial. This relief. Yeah, but it's it's real important. You know, Judy Sill used to always we'd be playing piano, no matter whose house she would at. 
we were at, none of us were great piano players. We were all sort of singer-songwriter pianos, meaning octave left hand and some kind of chord in the right. And Judy would come in the room and just beat on the bass note. And she's, put the third in the bass, not in the chord. Put the third in the bass, which is the way Bach always said. There's, the thirds are walking around mm -hmm. the bass, and the top's a lot of ones and fives. It's really clean that way. Putting unexpected bass notes in. Yeah. Brian Wilson would put unexpected yeah. bass notes in a lot. Yeah, definitely. We've done enough time? Reached, yeah, I think okay. we've done enough time here. Any uh, advice to... Uh, those in uh, starting to write their first song? Oh no, the songs are all about the same thing, just trying to get to the end. They're all just kind of a, a, a wish that you make it. I don't wish anybody ill. All the songs are hopeful. Even that little political journey down the Nile, where mm -hmm. just bad things happen to women through history. It's still all forward and positive and the bridges are always, we're, we're going to get out of this. We're going to do this right. You know, if it I, takes, I it, it takes a I, lifetime. I, I feel the same. I want to be energized yeah. by songs. Yeah, me too. Well, you've done it. I, I wasn't very energized by anything except packing. Yeah. Uh, until you blew into town. Well, I'm glad that you did it. Thanks for talking to me. Like a soft wind. Thank you. Yeah, and we found the, the only good Mexican uh, quesadillas within a few miles here. Huevos Rancheros, great, close to me. They've only been here for about a year, so it's a long time coming for me. I used to have to go to L.A. to get good Mexican food or San Antonio or... Someplace. That's good. Well, thank you, John David. Thank you, Louise. <laughs> this was really fun. Thank you. Yeah.